Hey, thank you for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can go to our website, renewalchicago.com. I pray that this podcast today is a blessing and encouragement to your soul. Today, we're kind of pushing pause. Remember, we've been in a series in the Sermon on the Mount. We're pausing that because today is Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday, a name that we get from an episode in the Bible, an event that we are going to read together today. And this event, we get to see Jesus kind of presenting himself in a more explicit way as king and as servant. And that's, that's our theme through the whole, everything that we look at today. And when, I, when I'm looking at this, it made me recall, they're actually in 1970, so we're coming up on 50 years ago, there was a, an essay written by a guy named Robert Greenleaf. If you're in the business world, you've almost certainly have heard of a term that he coined in this essay, servant leadership, right? Have you heard this term? Servant leadership, if, I mean, if you've been to a business conference or if you've read business books, I mean, this is a popular thing. It's, it's kind of this essay that Robert Greenleaf wrote, it kind of kicked off this whole cottage industry talking about servant leadership because all of the research showed that when a leader could serve his people or her people, it, it resulted in better things for both the leader and for the people and for the business, right? So Robert Greenleaf wrote this essay. It proved to be very, to have an enduring kind of quality. And yet, and yet, we can look out into the world and say, so where, 50 years on, where are all the servant leaders, right? You know, this is, this is a quick definition how, how Robert Greenleaf defined servant leadership. He said, while traditional leadership generally involves the accumulation and exercise of power, the accumulation and exercise of power by the one at the top of the pyramid, servant leadership, on the other hand, puts the needs of others first and helps people to develop and perform as highly as possible. Did you catch that? So servant leadership, it kind of, it kind of flips the pyramid a little bit, right? And so Greenleaf is saying if, if leaders actually serve, then everybody benefits more. But if we look out, there are just still, 50 years on, not that many leaders who are not just trying to accumulate and exercise power. Do you, do you see this is interesting. Actually, Harvard Business School just wrote an article, or a professor at Harvard Business School, I should say, asked the question just a couple of years ago, why isn't servant leadership more prevalent, right? In his findings, he kind of surveyed the field out in the business world, and his findings are bleak. He summarized by saying, servant leadership isn't practiced because of these reasons. It isn't rewarded. It's contrary to human nature. It comes at a personal cost to the leader and it feels like an oxymoron. Yeah, it's not practiced very often for all of those reasons. And this, this second one, it's contrary to human nature. When he surveyed business leaders and said, why isn't, why isn't it more prevalent? The business leaders really zeroed in on this one. It's, it seems contrary to human nature. Business leaders wrote back to the Harvard professor and said things like, you need, for servant leadership, you need somebody who is altogether virtuous. Imagine. These are Harvard business grads. You need somebody with more virtue, is what they said. You need somebody with that paradoxical, quote, paradoxical combination of courage and humility. You need somebody with a high degree of self-control. You need somebody who doesn't have to pander to find their validation. They have, they have validation from something else. Isn't this fascinating? 
Now, what Jesus is doing in the event we're about to read is he is saying, I am the servant leader. But he's, it's, it's more and better than what Greenleaf or any of these other business leaders had ever imagined. He's saying, I am the servant king. You, you ready to read this? This is awesome. Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Turn in your Bibles and your Bible apps. If you don't have one, maybe you can lean over and, and borrow a screen or a piece of paper from somebody else, like kind of read over their shoulder. We're also going to have it up on the screen here behind me. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. If you got it, say got it. All right, that was like 20 of us. Okay, so if you got it, say got it. Yes, and we can stand together if you're able. Stand as uh, I read. Matthew chapter 21, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on the cloaks. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. You guys may be seated. You know, this event is, is the event from which we get the name Palm Sunday, what we're celebrating today, what's been on the Christian calendar since the beginning of the Christian calendar, right? Palm Sunday, this event, and this event marks the beginning of the last week of Jesus's life. He, he comes into Jerusalem, and there is this spontaneous bursting scene of praise and adoration, right? In, in the Bible, it's interesting. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four historians that write these brief histories about Jesus's life. And all of them give this huge outsized portion of their histories that are already brief, right? They give this huge percentage to one week in Jesus's life. Now, that should tell us something, that Jesus's mission and purpose is happening now. It's like, this is it. Jesus, the Bible says Jesus' face was set like flint on Jerusalem. He knew where he was going and he knew what he was doing. And this is the beginning. This is the opening scene of what's called the Passion Week, the Holy Week. The word passion, it doesn't mean lots of emotion. It's taken from a Latin word to mean suffering. This is Jesus. He is aimed directly at his own suffering. He's on mission. You see, this is the scene. He enters Jerusalem, people burst on the scene, and we're going to look at this, and we're going to look at two other scenes here today together, okay? It's, it's a lot, but all of these, each of these scenes gives us a picture of what Jesus is doing this final week of, of his life. He is ramping up his self-disclosure, his self-revelation. Do you see? 
You know, he's, he's spent so much of his ministry kind of on the outskirts of cities, kind of in, in, on the farmland, in the agricultural centers, and he's avoided entering the city. And here we can see why. You know, do you remember when Jesus sometimes would heal somebody or perform some miraculous thing, he would tell people, don't go tell anyone? Did you ever say, think, that is so weird, right? Why would he say that? Here we see why. This is what happens when Jesus begins to really reveal himself in the city centers. The city is turned upside down in a matter of moments. You know, it, it, when Jesus discloses who he is in more direct and confrontational ways, what it does is it, it precipitates the events that would conclude on Friday. You see, he waited until the time was right. And here, we see Jesus ramping up his self-revelation, and he is displaying himself over and over and over again, as we will, as we will see, as king and as servant, okay? So we're going we're gonna to spend a little bit more time here on Jesus entering uh, Jerusalem. We're going to go, and we're going to see Jesus entering the temple, and we're going to see Jesus commanding a tree, okay? So those three things, Jesus entering Jerusalem, Jesus entering uh, the temple, and Jesus commanding a tree. Maybe that last one sounds weird. It is. It's so weird. We're going to look at all three of these. This is our thesis question. How is Jesus portraying himself? Because he's doing this on purpose. He's ramping this up. He's taking the gloves off. He's showing who he is. So first, Jesus enters Jerusalem. You know, this is such a famous scene that it's generated its own kind of title. Maybe you've heard of it. The triumphal entry, capital T, capital E, the triumphal entry. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and the scene is one of exuberance, spontaneous praise, almost pandemonium. You know, even as he's approaching the city gates, there are people before him and behind him, and they're cutting branches off of trees, right, to lay them out in front of him so that so the donkey that he's riding on doesn't step on the ground. It's like a spontaneous red carpet being rolled out for, for royalty. They're taking off of their cloaks and they're laying them down so that an animal can walk on them. Do you see? And they're, they're shouting praise. They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. There is so much symbolism in this scene. It's difficult, difficult for me to sum up right here really quickly. You know, the, the, the idea of people flooding the streets, you know, the, the people in businesses were like closing their businesses and flooding the streets. The, what, is the, what does Matthew say? The, the historian, he says that the whole city was turned on its head. Jerusalem. So some of the symbolism has to do with Jerusalem. Jesus is entering the cultural and religious and economic and historic center of the Israelites. He was entering it, and that center was turned upside down and inside out, just like that, just with his entering. You see, there's a lot of significance here. The people, they cut down palms, and we, we still have this imagery, like when there's a king or royalty, you know, people are waving, they're fanning them with leaves. People are doing that to Jesus, to this, to this guy from Nazareth. They're, they're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David. They're, they're hearkening back very explicitly to the line of David, the royal line. They're calling him king. And then they say this word, Hosanna. So curious, isn't it? I mean, all of our Bible is translated into English, except for Hosanna. Why? Why did they leave that word there? 
because the people who were shouting it were, were, were speaking probably in Aramaic, but they were shouting a word in Hebrew. And so the translators leave it in Hebrew so that we can begin to capture this as unusual. They're using a Hebrew word that is based from the time of the Passover. The, the Hebrew word just means this, save us. Save us. You know, there's a, uh, the Superman movies, man, they're so dumb. But there was one a few years ago. I don't remember which one it was. I don't know, five or six years ago. And uh, that one, the one with Kevin Costner, he dies, that one. Okay, so the bad guys, it looks like they're going to take over, and everything's, at the wor- everything's the worst. And there's this one scene, and Superman's like, wait, he's like a tiny speck in the sky, but he's coming. And a woman looks up, and she points, and she, scree- she exclaims, he's here to save us, Right? That's what these people are saying. They're looking at Jesus and they're saying, he's here to save us. Hosanna, blessed is the king who has come. The the imagery here is direct that Jesus is king. He has this authority and radiating power that is able to turn a city on its head just at his entering. You know, there's one part where It's not recorded in Matthew. It's in another one of the histories. Jesus is riding the donkey, and the the scene is so comical. There's all of the pandemonium and exuberant praise all around him, the whole city. And some religious leader comes up, and you can kind of imagine him kind of trotting beside the donkey to try to keep up. And he tells Jesus, hey, can you tell them to calm down? He is missing it. And Jesus, his response is so incredible. He says, If they don't praise me, I tell you what, the very rocks will cry out. He is king. And he he is acknowledging and he is presenting himself unequivocally as king. King of kings. A king like you can't imagine. The kind of king that if you don't praise him, the rocks will. You see. And yet, everything, every element in this scene says king, kingdom, strength, power, victory, every element except for one. Did you notice that? The donkey. The donkey's cult. And the donkey's cult is the one piece that Jesus so explicitly choreographed. He tells his disciples, now we don't know if he had made, if Jesus had made some kind of prearrangement with the donkey owner. We don't know. We don't know if it was like miraculous that somehow the disciples were going to go and give this passphrase and miraculously it it would work out. It, It doesn't matter. The point is Jesus arranged this. This is the point that he choreographed. And Matthew, the historian, tells us why. He doesn't want us to miss it. He he reaches back into Old Testament prophecy and he puts the verse right there in front of us so that we don't miss this king is a different kind of king. What does it say? Behold your king. He's coming, humble, seated on the back of a donkey, a beast of burden, and not just a donkey, the cult of a donkey. Like you have the animals, you have a hierarchy, the donkey is low, he's a beast of burden, and then you have a baby one, like the lowest of the low. Jesus is saying, yes, I'm king. He doesn't deny that. He puts it on display, but he says, let me tell you about the kind of king that I am. I am humble. I I make myself low. You you can't even imagine how low I am making myself right now. You know, if if God is really 
God, if Jesus really is God incarnate come to earth, then, then what that means is he has made himself radically, infinitely low. He is humble. He lowers himself. And his, his whole purpose, his whole mission is aimed where? At Friday, when he's to be betrayed, when he is to be turned over to the authorities, when he is to be killed. You know, you've heard perhaps the preacher say on Good Friday, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. You've heard that? Here, Jesus is saying, it's Sunday, but Friday's coming. It's Sunday, I'm king, but I am humble like you wouldn't imagine. It's Sunday, but Friday's coming. I am on mission for you. This, this is the kind of leadership that Greenleaf and others, you in your heart, you, 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 you have an inkling that you need, right? But you've never seen it before expressed so radically the way Jesus expresses it. He is king, my friends, yet he is servant. This is the servant king. It's remarkable. And right from there, Jesus continues this incredible self-revelation. All throughout, if, you were, if we were to continue, if we were to stay the whole day and read all of the Passion Week together, you know, every one of these events that Jesus does, it's like he's just ramping up his self-revelation and becoming more and more, frankly, confrontational. You know, if he's king, if he's servant, and if he's got a purpose and a mission that's different than yours, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be confrontation, and Jesus goes step by step through all of these. And we're going to, like I said, we're looking at three. So straight from there, straight from the, this incredible scene entering Jerusalem, he moves to the temple. Verse 12, if you still got it, if you got your Bible open, if you don't, open it again. Matthew 21, uh, verse 12 says this, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus has so at hand the scriptures that he, in one sentence, quotes from two different prophets, from Isaiah and from Jeremiah. Isaiah, my house shall be called a house of prayer from Jeremiah. You have made it a den of robbers. It's amazing. And, and if you can imagine, again, it's hard for me to imagine this. Somebody, J- Jerusalem was not Jesus' home turf in a way. You know, like he spent his time in, in, on the outskirts, in the towns and in the villages, in the countryside. And so he's stepping into a place, not just any place. This is the temple, right? It's not like one of them. This is the temple in the city of David. And he steps in as an outsider, and immediately he changes the whole dynamic. He has such pulsing, radiating authority that he turns the place upside down. Nobody is, has the courage to confront him and to say, stop. You see, he actually changes the temple. Just stepping in, he's turning over tables. This is by far Jesus' most radical confrontation that we can see. He's confrontational sometimes with his words, you know, Sometimes he can be pretty sharp, especially to the hypocrisy of the elites of his day. But here we see him being physically confrontational. He turns over tables. He, he, he turns over the chairs of those who are selling 
pigeons. Now, a chair, a stool, is for sitting on. If he's turning them over, people are falling down. Do you see what I mean? He's being very confrontational. And he, he turns the place upside down, and he says, my house is a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of robbers. Do you see? They have taken what God intended in the, in the great sacrificial system of the Israelites, to this way to present yourself before God, to make an offering of thanksgiving before him, or to make an offering of repentance before him. The people who, who are supposed to be in charge and guard the sacred practice, had turned it into a way to profit. They had made a mockery of the sacred practice, and Jesus won't have it. He is king. And he can step in and do this so radically. Why? Because it's his temple. It's his And somehow, somehow he's able to move dozens or maybe hundreds of people and and change the whole scene. And the next verses, if we were to keep reading, would say that he he began healing the lame and the blind. And children were standing in the temple courts and they were singing Hosanna to him. The whole scene changes. Now, if you were to expect, if if an ordinary person of, of, uh, of privilege, of power, came into a city and the city turned upside down like it did for Jesus and everybody's following this guy and then he goes to the most important city site. What is that guy doing normally? He's going there to rub shoulders with the other powerful people, to glad hand them, right? To hang out with them, to schmooze with them, to show, to to like make himself part of this power structure. Yet Jesus enters the temple and he is concerned with what? With the poor. And here's what I mean by that. This is very explicit. For, for first century readers, this would have been explicit for them. The one sacrifice that the Bible points out here is what? Did you see it? You can answer. This is Renewal Church. Pigeons. The pigeon in the Old Testament was the sacrifice reserved for somebody who was too impoverished to buy livestock. Jesus enters the temple, and he does not see the people in power. He sees the people who are, being, who are being abused. He sees the people who, <laughs> who are profiteering on the backs of the poor. And he says, get out. He is concerned with the lowly, with the humble. He, he, is, he is the almighty God, yet his eyes are on the ones who have need and who are forgotten and who are marginalized and who are abused. And he says, you, this house is for you. The rest of you, get out. He is king, yet he is humble. Who is like this guy? With the power and authority, authority that I can, like I said, I I cannot imagine someone entering the stock trading floor and just changing it. But this is what he does in the temple. That kind of authority, yet that kind of sensitivity and humility, and accessibility. Where when he's done, children want to be with him. Who is this guy? He is the servant king. I hope you see him. That's what he wants. He's portraying himself as he really is, the almighty king and the humble servant all at once. He enters Jerusalem. He enters the temple. He moves on to the fig tree. 
If, you, if we jump down to verse 18, you know, Jesus had been spending the, this final week of his life, he was spending his days in Jerusalem, and then he would leave for the night and, and kind of camp out, and then he would enter the city again. So verse 18, this is what's happening. In the morning, it says, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. I said this was a weird story. This is crazy. Jesus speaks to a tree and it listens to him. It obeys. Now, now taken together, I'm not just looking at these three stories in a row just because I needed some more things to look at. We gotta look at these together. This is Jesus on purpose presenting himself as he really is. When he enters Jerusalem and, and the place is turned upside down, he is showing himself to be Lord. He is Lord of the political and social realms. Do you see? He, he is a military victor unlike any other that has ever entered Jerusalem to a parade. He, he is Lord of the political and social realms. When he enters the temple, he is showing himself to be Lord of what? of the economic and religious realm. When he speaks to the tree and it obeys, he is Lord of the natural realm. He is Lord of all of this. He is showing himself as he really is. And, and there's, there's something happening here. When, when, when Jesus speaks to the tree, there's just two things going on. There's like literally what happened and there's symbolically what happened. Like literally what happened is Jesus spoke to a fig tree and it obeyed. It is, it's amazing. We don't want to miss this. He is Lord of the natural order. When he speaks, imagine the kind of authority that we're talking about here. When you speak to nature, natural laws bend in obedience. They say, okay, yes, sir, right away, how fast? That's what's happening with Jesus in the fig tree, literally. And the disciples see it and they're just... If you read a couple of verses later, they're just aghast. They're marveling, like, what is happening at the literal account that they just witnessed? But there's also this symbolic thing that's happening with the tree. And I had to read about this. I didn't, I didn't know all of this because, again, we're just so separated culturally uh, and, and by time and everything else from this text. You know, when Jesus is hungry and he's on his way to Jerusalem and he sees in the distance there's a fig tree and it's in leaf. A fig tree, when it has leaves, it almost immediately begins producing figs. So Jesus sees the fig tree and he goes up there and it had the appearance of bearing fruit, but in fact, upon closer inspection, it was fruitless. Do you see, Jesus is right, he is king, and as king, he has the right to judge and condemn hypocrisy, the appearance of fruit, but fruitlessness. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, I am judge, and you do not pass. You are condemned. He has every right to curse the fig tree. Jesus used agriculture a lot to teach, and that is what's happening here. Later, in the, in the same uh, chapter, we, we will see Jesus expand on a teaching about a fig tree. He will not abide hypocrisy the appearance of fruit, but fruitlessness. Looking and parading yourself like you got it all together, but upon closer inspection, you're sick. That's what Jesus is doing here. 
He goes to the tree. He literally commands it. Yes, the literal thing is true, but there's also this symbolic meaning. Like, hypocrisy is not something that Jesus will put up with. He is king. He is judge. And it's so evident. He is is Lord of the natural order. And yet, the disciples, mouths agape, I imagine, (laughs) they're marveling at this thing that they have just seen. And Jesus, this is remarkable. He pauses and he turns to them and he teaches. These are the guys who have walked with Jesus for years. And and Jesus still takes the time to explain yet again who he is. He says, listen, guys, if you think a tree obeying me is amazing, you haven't comprehended yet who I am. Mountains obey me, covered with thousands of trees. You know, And, and who, why would he do this? These are his final moments. Time is precious. Friday is coming. And yet, he stoops low. Do you hear? Do you see? He stoops low and he speaks again to his disciples and explains who he is. He is king. He is Lord over the natural order. He is servant who concerns himself with childlike questions that have been asked a dozen times before. He explains to the disciples, he is servant, he is king. This is the servant king, my friends. There's nobody else like him. Jesus enters Jerusalem and his kingship and servanthood are on display. He entered the temple and his kingship and his servanthood are on display. He curses the fig tree and speaks to his disciples and his kingship and his servanthood are on display. Do you see? He's on mission. He's telling people who he is. He is calling them into belief. Let the passage do the same thing for you. Listen to who Jesus claims to be. He will not be your little boutique solution to your tiny problem. He is king. He will not be the person that you just selectively ask for his service. He he, he is king. He is the servant king. He is almighty. And he stoops low on your behalf. That's how he is presenting himself. These are not my words. These are his words. These are how he chose to portray himself in his final hours to you and to me, as servant king. Do you know him? Do you really know him? Not did you grow up going to church. Do you see him as servant king? That's how he's portraying himself. Now, I don't know what's more difficult for you to imagine him or to accept him as king or to accept him as servant. Now, we know that in Jesus' day, both of these for different groups of people were difficult, right? For example, uh, many of Jesus' followers were probably kind of annoyed that he chose to enter Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. It didn't fit the template of military victor. He should have been in a chariot, right? Some of, even his followers, even his disciples, some of them were so, like, bent on him becoming a political leader, that they were missing like what he, who he actually was. They would have been offended by his servants, uh, by his servanthood. I, I confess to you that for me, when I, I can look back at when I first was teaching and preaching on this passage of Jesus entering Jerusalem, I talked all about his kingship and I didn't talk at all about the donkey. I didn't have a category for it. You know, so maybe it's his, it's his servanthood that's more, more difficult for you to accept. Your king as servant, as humble, as lowering himself. Or maybe it's the other way around. 
Like his kingship is harder for you to accept. This was also difficult for people in Jesus's day. The religious elites were tired of him looking like a king. Who is this guy to step into our world and tell us what to do? Maybe that's that's what a God looks like to you. Who is anyone to tell me how to live or what to do? Who is, who is Jesus to claim the authority to rightly condemn or judge wrongdoing? Jesus is presenting himself very plainly to you. If you're offended either by his kingship or by his servanthood, you got something, but you don't have Jesus. His his. His presentation gives you no other way, gives you no other option. And let me say something here that's very important. It is so good that he is servant king. Now, maybe one of those or maybe both of those at different times in your life are difficult to accept that he is servant and that he is king. But it is so good because if he was anything less than the perfect, almighty, all-authoritative king, then his sacrifice is nullified. Why? It must, all of the sin of all of the people for all of time, for justice to be done and not to be mocked, it better be a good sacrifice. Jesus needs to be king. Yet if he is, if he is not servant, then the sacrifice isn't made in the first place. Jesus is focused on his mission. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are focused on your mission that you were servant and that you were king, that you moved to Friday on purpose, that the, that the most incredible act of humility and of service ever imagined that you performed on the cross. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, that you moved to Sunday after that and the most incredible act of kingship ever imagined happened in your resurrection. Do you see? He's a servant king. You need nothing less and the servant king. Thanks again for listening to our podcast today. I pray again that it was a blessing and encouragement to your soul. And I hope to see you at one of our services at 10 a.m. Take care. God bless you.